Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Spider-Man audio experience. Here, we crawl up the narrative, web up the characters, sling up the themes, and finally face down the comic book behemoth that is the Spider-Man franchise. So, you're the Spider-ling, crime-fighting spider. You're Spider-Boy? Spider-Man. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is He's a Menace, where your friendly neighborhood podcast Sans Frontiers hosts tackle Spider-Man No Way Home, the latest MCU offering of Spider-Man. But first, our spoiler warning for this episode. We will be talking about Spider-Man No Way Home in full spoilers. We will do a little production history and overall, did we like it, up top, but then we will have a musical break and work through the film in full. Pretty much everything from the MCU and previous Spider-Man films are fair game, and Spider-Man comics from the 616 are probably going to be discussed as well. We are basically doing this because we both love Spider-Man and have a long history with him. While I have a lot of Marvel interests and that ebbs and flows over time, I am pretty much always down for Spider-Man stuff. Day one, uh, it's usually day one stuff for me. I've seen every movie, including the bad ones, first day or first weekend, so... Uh, anything you want to share about your history with Spider-Man? Which ones are those bad ones again? Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> are they referenced in this movie a lot? Be, sure would be a shame if they were. So, uh, I'm pretty sure they are. I feel rewarded for watching them. I guess. But you love all that Rhino continuity. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I don't really have... Spider-Man's been like, always been like Batman in movie. It's just like, since I could remember liking things, I liked Spider-Man. So I always watch the movies, even when they're bad, like you said. But especially when they're good. Yes, especially. Before we get into our No Way uh, Home thoughts, uh, we'll do a little quick production rundown. Uh, This is the third film in the MCU-Sony partnership on Spider-Man and the 27th film overall in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, It's the third Spider-Man series of our lifetime. Uh, The first one was with Tobey Maguire, and the second one was with Andrew Garfield, which... Third Spider-Man series of this century. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Every every generation deserves at least three Spider-Man 2s. Um, and this movie was produced by Columbia in conjunction with Marvel Studios and distributed by Sony Pictures. Uh, the director is John Watts, who did the previous two Spider-Man films and is also currently attached to the upcoming Fantastic Four movie in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Chris McKenna and Eric Summers are the writers, and they also wrote the previous two films as well. And these are, of course, based on comics by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, um, and have obviously been picked up by many authors over the years. Um, this movie also prominently features uh, Dr. Stephen Strange, who is also a Steve Ditko creation, um, which is kind of neat. And then uh, the score is handled by Michael Giacchino, who's also been handling the scores for these films through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And did the score from Lost. That's what I remember him from. Um, and then he's also, uh, to go through the cast real quick, um, Tom Holland plays Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Uh, Zendaya plays MJ. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is the aforementioned Doctor Strange. Jacob Batalon is Ned Leeds. John Favreau reprises his role of Happy Hogan. Marissa Tomei is Aunt May. And there are several uh, villains from previous Spider-Man films that have been in the trailers, such as Jamie Foxx as uh, Max Dillon or Electro, Alfred Molina as Dr. Otto Octavius or Doc Ock, Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn slash the Green Goblin, Thomas Hayden Church as 
Flint Marco, a.k.a. the Sandman, and Reese Ifans as Dr. Kurt Connors uh, slash the Lizard. There's a couple more that I'm sure everyone already knows is in this movie, but we'll just wait till after the spoiler break to That's right. go into Paul it. Paul Giamatti as the Rhino. It's just a minor spoiler. This is a minor spoiler, but I, I laughed when you said Jamie Foxx as Mac as Max Dillon. He's not. He's playing Jamie Foxx in this movie. Yeah, he just shows up as Jamie Foxx, and it's great. I'm not going to complain. It's it's a much better performance than his Max Dillon in Amazing Spider-Man Two. Yeah, it's just it's for the best that they just kind of jettison that away. Yeah. Um, and just one last note before we get into our non-spoiler thoughts is that this film was like many films pushed back due to COVID, but was originally slated to. Uh, premiere after Doctor Strange 2, which is technically the next film on the MCO, M- MCO, MCU roadmap. Um, the idea, um, at least as it settles now, is that WandaVision, uh, this movie, Spider-Man No Way Home, and Doctor Strange uh, Multiverse of Madness is at least kind of all part of the same story, or at least that Doctor Strange film is going to deal with the repercussions from this and uh, the WandaVision uh, television series, which I'm sure we'll talk about once we get into the spoiler section. So, uh, really quickly, just kind of non-spoiler thoughts. Uh, my overall opinion is that this movie is pretty fun and probably way better than it actually should be, um, given everything that's going on in it. There's a lot of stuff that um, I don't know how it will play with people who may not be familiar with the previous Spider-Man films, and I think there's a lot of kind of MCU crosstalk or filler humor or like jokes right after sentimental scenes that kind of really, oh, yeah, yeah. really yeah. suck this time around. Um, I think uh, Ned Leeds, who I thought was a pretty enjoyable character in those first two movies, really gets the brunt of like the dialogue that's like, I just wish was not in this movie. Yeah. Um, some of it also goes to Happy and Aunt May. But um, when we get to the last act and some of the other characters, which I'm trying to be oblique about, I think most of that dialogue is pretty good. Um, but I do think, uh, just the general MCU crosstalk filler humor just kind of really fell flat. And there's a lot of kind of green screen nonsense. As much as I enjoyed this film, it didn't always look that great. Well, um, the big, the big thing about this film that I will say, and it's the big thing I agree with, it's like my biggest weakness of the film is that you can tell that none of this film was shot in New York. Mm-hmm. Not a, not a frame of this film was shot in New York city. And it, it very obviously looks like that. Yeah, even the big set piece that uh, invokes a famous New York City landmark is just so clearly not remotely that. And it, uh, for the plot reasons, it kind of makes sense because there's a lot more going around. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah well, they couldn't, they definitely couldn't actually film there. But um, yeah, I, I think maybe part of that too is having just rewatched the Raimi, the first two Raimi movies, which and in the process of watching Hawkeye, which all three of those are obvious. I mean, maybe the first Raimi movie, not as much, but Spider-Man 2 and Hawkeye have very, are very obviously filmed in New York. Yes. And, like, it's just, it's just kind of distracting to see where it's not New York. Like, uh, there there is a, there's a certain amount of leeway I'm willing to give, especially, like, lower-budget superhero stuff. You know, like, all, all the CW stuff is filmed in Vancouver, and it's obviously Vancouver. I'm willing to give that... Especially when it's supposed to be like Central City or Star City or, you know, Metropolis or whatever. That's fine. It's just, it's much more distracting when it's New York City. Like a city that, even if you've never been to it, I think we all have like a, a picture of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, this is not it. 
Yeah, um, I think they do get some establishing shots because they spend some time in Long Island. Um, but it's just like literally one shot and then it's all in a set. Um, yeah. Just like they yeah. have one shot of like the Statue of Liberty and the New York skyline, but then it's also all clearly either on set or green screen or most likely Atlanta, Georgia in some capacity. But, you know, aside from that, and I do have complaints, um, I do think overall it was a good time at the theater. I think it moved, like, unlike Endgame specifically, it's a movie where there's a lot of stuff happening, but it doesn't feel like a two-and-a-half-hour movie. It feels more like a 90-minute movie. Like, it has a nice, brisk pace for the most part, mm-hmm. which is good. It's good. It, made, it, made, it was not a movie that I ever at any point was like, wow, this is dragging. It just sort of goes. Yeah, I was uh, kind of both impressed and happy with the fact that they got into some of that stuff pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, they do spend maybe the first like 10, 15 minutes kind of wallowing in Peter's life, following the fallout of uh, Far From Home, where his identity was revealed. Um, like, and th- that all kind of sets up some of the uh, MJ stuff and kind of the ending with Peter Parker. Um, so I'm a little bit forgiving of that, but kind of once uh, he meets Doctor Strange, the plot just kind of keeps going, and there's like new yeah. surprises coming, uh, which at least keeps it as an enjoyable movie experience. And you're never like, yeah, it's not Age of Ultron where you go sit at a farm for you know half an hour in yeah. the middle of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had a nice, and then uh, John, that's I think that's uh, John wants to show. That's I think that's his biggest skill with these movies is that they all they don't really feel super slow. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll work well for a Fantastic Four movie. Yeah, that's what I was thinking specifically. So, um, and I, I, like, I don't think John Watts is a director that I think has like a distinct visual style that I'm like, oh, this is a good director. Um, but he seems, you know, I like Spider-Man Homecoming a lot. Mm-hmm. Far From Home is fine. Um, but like, I think he just kind of understands how to pace this kind of teen Spider-Man story. Um, because, Something I forget is that these films, specifically in the MCU, are probably geared a little bit younger, um, both, you know, because it's a high school story, but also Spider-Man's a little bit more of a all ages and widely appreciated character compared to, you know, some of the other characters in the um, gallery. But um, I think we're probably going to strain to say much more without just getting into full spoilers. No, because you can't. Yeah, I don't think you can, really. I guess, I guess... I'll save this for the spoiler. It's a it's a criticism I have of the movie, and it's not really fair to the movie. But um, so we are going to drop in a little bit of a music clip here, and then following it, we are coming back with full spoiler discussions, and we're going to go through the plot in full. And the spoilers literally start in the first couple scenes. So um, just you you've been warned. I assume you're not listening unless you want to hear our thoughts on the actual film. But yeah, most people. most people have seen this. Yeah. All right, so uh, cutting now, and we'll see you in a few seconds. So we are picking up with the plot of No Way Home, which picks up immediately uh, following the second post credit scene of Far From Home, which, if you recall, is Spider-Man and MJ in downtown New York when J. Jonah, J. Jonah Jameson comes on screen and reveals Spider-Man's identity and says he was behind Mysterio's death and he was the one trying to drone kill everyone in London. Um, Peter, not really sure what to do. Uh, 
picks up MJ and starts swinging her back home. Um, as set up in that, you know, second post credit scene from the last film, MJ is terrified of this, as she should be. Um, and we see that they're being surrounded by ho- helicopters no matter where they go, news copters, possibly police copters as well. And they finally do make it back to uh, Peter's apartment after taking the subway. And they uh, kind of stumble into Aunt May and Happy Hogan, quote unquote, breaking up. Um, and this is kind of where we start getting into, there's a lot of like stalling humor there where like Peter comes in and then uh, Happy and May kind of barge into his room and see him naked with uh, Zendaya. Um, and then Peter starts like, oh, let's talk about your relationship. And uh, he's kind of trying to distract from the fact that they're, you know, being pinned down by the police and surrounded by news copters. But it was just like they could have shortened this a little bit um, because I don't I, mind that it's it's Peter being a, it's Peter being a goof. Mm-hmm. Peter being a dork, like that's fine. That's there's that's how he should be. He shouldn't be like smooth and cool. He's a, he's a goofus. Um, but uh, once they kind of like shepherd, uh, let's say Aunt May and Happy into the family room, um, MJ points out that on the TV um, they just have live ca- uh, helicopter footage of Peter and Aunt May's apartment with helicopters, police cars surrounding it. Uh, people are yelling on the street, yelling out their window. Uh, neighbors are asking, is it true? Is Peter Spider-Man? Um, and this is all just like a big bombshell for uh, May and Happy and all that stuff. And this kind of leads us into our next sequence where the police show up. Um, technically, it's the Department of Damage Control, who, which was established, control, yeah. established in Spider-Man Homecoming. And they're being led by, ah, I should have gotten the actor's name, but it's Stewie from Secession. Um, which is very topical in terms of the zeitgeist. Um, here, let me let me get the actor's name real quick because I like to be um, uh, Arian Moyad. Um, he shows up and he's kind of playing the bad cop. Um, I, they're all bad cops, a cab. Yeah. Um, but uh, he takes the all the like interested parties with Peter Parker down to um, the station. I guess they're just using a police station for their interrogation. Um, and you know, Aunt May and uh, MJ are pretty much don't say anything without a lawyer. Um, May, uh, um, what's it called? Uh, MJ plays it off really well with her, uh, what's it called? Interrogation just says lawyer, lawyer, lawyer. She knows all the cop tricks. Um, Ned, um, he kind of gets suckered into the good cop routine from Stewie. Um, and he kind of spills that, you know, they hacked the initial Spider-Man suit that they brought down the vulture and yada, yada. Um, and then with Aunt May, I think the maybe important part here is that uh, Stewie kind of threatens that, you know, Peter might be taken away from her because uh, she is, you know, not biologically his mother, e- even though she is a legal guardian, um, you know, a court or whoever could decide to actually take Peter away mm-hmm. from her for negligence or, you know, encouraging his vigilantism. And that's when we go back to the apartment and get probably the first big, quote unquote, spoiler moment of this movie. Because uh, Peter's lawyer is, of course, Matt Murdock, played by Charlie Cox from the Daredevil series on Netflix. Uh, so, Matt Murdock, what are your thoughts, buddy? I think it's my favorite live-action superhero performance by a hero, for sure. Like, I don't know. He's great. Matt Carter, Charlie Cox is a perfect Matt Murdock, and he's he's only in this for 90 seconds. But, hey, it's great. It's great to see him. I'm happy he's there. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. He's, he's great. I don't uh, He's a really, really good Matt Murdock. Yeah, I will say uh, seasons one and seasons three of Daredevil are pretty much all around solid to me. I actually really like them. Uh, season two is good for about four episodes before they mm-hmm. decide to put the Punisher on the back shelf. But um, all throughout, I think Charlie Cox is just fantastic. He was 
easily the best part of the that really bad defender show. Um, I, I I have no complaints here. Um, actually, the way I've been thinking about the MCU for the last you know maybe year and a half, how it's kind of maybe tired or very formulaic. Um, the way it kind of interacts with cops and you know Department of Defense and all those things that don't mm. make me feel great. Um, Matt Murdock slash Daredevil is actually a great character to kind of change that up um, because he is poor. Um, he is um, a person with disabilities, um, but also that he's always kind of street level and never gets along with cops or any of that stuff. Um, and he has, you know, that good old Irish Catholic guilt. I think he can be a great character if they give, uh, you know, the writers a chance to really shine with this. So I would love to see Matt Murdock um, a lot more. I know he's supposed to be in this Echo series that's going to be spinning out of Hawkeye, but I can't believe it'll be too long before they just flat out announce a Daredevil series um, as well. Um, Matt's big moment here is basically someone tries to throw a brick in through Peter's window and this blind man just kind of catches it barehanded without looking, um, which he just plays off as him being a really good lawyer. Which is a great, it's a great, I, 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 my only hope is that they get more Daredevil Spider-Man stuff. Cause it's one of the things I like most about both of these characters in the MCU is that they got, we got a bunch of Daredevil Punisher stuff, which was good. We are getting Spider-Man Doctor Strange stuff. That's a classic pairing. And Hopefully we get Spider-Man Punisher stuff. Hopefully we get Spider-Man Daredevil stuff. Like those are some pairings I want because those are always fun. Those two specifically. Yes, I agree. I think they are like the platonic ideal of the Marvel street level superhero. Um, and they both also intimately connect with the Kingpin, um, who yeah. um, I guess since we're going full spoilers on the MCU was uh, teased out in the Hawkeye uh, TV series. So we know he's coming as well. Um, Daredevil and Spider-Man have a lot of great stories in the comics. Um, we even see sometimes, you know, when Daredevil is out, you know, Spider-Man kind of fills in for him or vice versa. Um, there's a very good relationship between Peter Parker and Matt Murdock. Um, and I'm hoping that they really explore that going forward, especially especially with Peter being a little bit uh, less wealthy, let's say, at the end of this film. But we'll get there eventually. They're probably the two most in Marvel. They're probably the two the, the two heroes most synonymous with New York City. Like that's they're the, mm -hmm. they're the New York heroes. I feel like. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, for those who don't know, Daredevil is very heavily associated with Hell's Kitchen specifically, um, which kind of plays into that whole devil thing. Um, though I think uh, Frank Miller is really the one that built the house that you know mm -hmm. Daredevil lives in. And but uh, I think ever since that Frank Miller run in the late 70s, early 80s, Daredevil has been one of the best-selling uh, Marvel comics. Um, not like the best-selling, because I think X-Men and Spider-Man kind of had him beat, but uh, Daredevil has been a consistent like prestige title and bestseller ever since Frank Miller's run in the 80s. Um, while we're at it, you can just say, uh, check out uh, Kevin Smith's short run. Brian Michael Bendis has a great extended run, which was immediately followed by Ed Brubaker, who had a great run. Mm -hmm. And then Mark Wade kind of took him over and kind of had a different spin on it in the early or early teens of this uh, century. Um, that was also great. Daredevil is generally one of the best written characters at um, at Marvel over time. I will say it's a little bit funny that because um, Hell's Kitchen is historically an Irish, like a working class Irish neighborhood until the '80s when it started getting gentrified. So it's a little funny now to have like a super tough. Like, I don't know, it's just funny there's a superhero in Hell's Kitchen when it's, like, a very gentrified area now. But mm -hmm. it's still called Hell's Kitchen, so I guess that's why it still works. And, you know, Marvel, maybe Marvel's Hell's Kitchen's never never got gentrified. Maybe it's just a hellscape, because it was in, in the Netflix ones. It was, like, 1980s New York come back to life. Yeah. 
They, everything looked like shit. It was great. I haven't stayed in Hell's Kitchen, but I've gone there plenty of times to have ramen. So I don't know what that means, but I really like the ramen I've had in Hell's Kitchen. Um, we'll, we'll come back to the story and, um, the focus. Um, so these Spider-Man movies have kind of been like Peter's sophomore, junior and senior year to varying Mm -hmm. degrees. I know the last movie was kind of a summer break movie. Um, but this is supposed to be their senior year in high school and they're all trying to get into college. Namely, MIT is their number one choice for both MJ, Peter and Ned. Um, but we see, um, that they're having trouble getting into schools because of the Spider-Man controversy. We see that when they go to high school, they have to be escorted in, which I, it kind of feels like the Little Rock Nine or something from the Civil Rights Movement, which is not an analogy that I want to make with this film, but it just kind of has that feel where people are protesting mm-hmm. students walking into a school. Um, um, so basically, um, they're unable to get into the various colleges, and it's all basically because they're actually friends with Spider-Man, um, as opposed to, say, Flash Thompson, who is pretending he's friends with Spider-Man, but really isn't. And he gets into MIT, which I'm only mentioning because, you know, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Um, While they're lamenting their inability to get into MIT, Peter spies out some Halloween decorations, one that looks an awful lot like Doctor Strange, um, which uh, leads Peter to head to the Sanctum Santorum, uh, which is, of course, Doctor Strange's mythical house in Greenwich Village. And uh, we uh, walk in, we see it's covered in snow, uh, Wong and Doctor Strange uh, enter shortly, and we find out that Wong is technically the Sorcerer Supreme at the moment, um, on a technicality, according to Doctor Strange, because, you know, he was blipped away for five years while Wong was not. Um, and uh, to Doctor Strange, Peter makes this plea that, hey, you know, every ever since Mysterio released my identity, everyone's kind of, um, you know, everyone's life in my orbit has totally gotten fucked. Um, is there anything we can do to turn back time? Uh, to which Doctor Strange replies, we we destroyed the Time Stone. That was kind of like that whole thing we did to bring back, you know, half the universe. But um, through the uh, crosstalk, uh, the idea of a forgetting spell comes to Strange's mind. And, you know, it seems like Doctor Strange has a kind of paternal, you know, feeling towards Peter at this point. Um, I don't know if he's trying to pick that up from Stark, even though Strange and Stark didn't get along, or if he just kind of feels bad for the kid. Um, but it definitely seems like uh, at the beginning, Doctor Strange uh, has a lot of sympathy for Peter's plight at the moment. Strange will lead uh, Peter down to the crypts or the Undercroft, as he likes to call it. And, you know, he starts casting this giant forgetting spell that will make everyone forget um, that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. And, uh, you know, Peter, like after the spell starts being cast, is like, well, MJ knows and it'd be great if she could still remember Uh, Well, also Ned. Well, there's, you know, Aunt May. Um, So he just keeps, like, remembering, you know, remembering some guys. And uh, it just keeps throwing Strange off. He has to kind of take the spell that he's currently casting, kind of, like, put it on hold, and then try to cast a new spell. Um, And through this process, uh, which Wong warned, like, a forgetting spell is kind of tapping into the energies of parallel universes or dark universes. Um, And through this tampering, Peter kind of breaks the spell and it kind of creates um basically a spot where other universes can invade into this universe that uh, peter parker is in um and strange has to basically audible and instead of performing the spell he has to kind of just stop it in his track and try to contain it uh which he does he kind of traps the spell uh within this little crystal like 
spell holder and he'll eventually have a much more prominent hardware that he keeps it in. But basically he put the spell on hold. Um, and then uh, Peter's like, you know, what am I supposed to do? Strange is like, well, you know, you did everything you can. You talked to MIT and they, you know, wouldn't let you, you know, take you. And then Peter's like, wait, I could have, I could have talked to MIT. Um, and then Strange gets really pissed at him because um, he would have thought that he would have talked to the admissions agent before, you know, asking the wizard to uh, change the world, basically. Uh, this leads uh, Peter to connect to Flash, who asks, you know, where's the, you know, recruiting agent or the admissions? It's really making the movie seem a lot more complicated than it is, but it, it really it does watch much smoother. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. This is me trying to describe it from memory and a couple bullet points, but... Uh, so, uh, Peter realizes that the admissions person is on their way to the airport. Um, so he swings and uh, glides over there, uh, to try and locate her in her car and plead the case for MJ and Ned's sake, less so for his own. Uh, and then during this, uh, we get our first major villain appearance, and that would be Dr. Otto Octavius, uh, played by Alfred Molina, as mentioned, reprising his role from Spider-Man 2, uh, the Tobey Maguire film. Um, and then you kind of get, you know, a standard MCU action sequence. Uh, it's one of those things where none of this is as good as any of the Raimi action sequences um, nope. for many reasons. But, you know, it's still enjoyable. Um, I do kind of like that. Uh, while I'm not a huge fan of Peter Parker's Iron Spider suit in these films, um, actually using all four of those extra arms to fight with Doc Ock is at least uh, a nice touch, a nice way to kind of, you know, punch up this sequence and actually play in the MCU universe. It's a good fight. It's, it's, it's a good enough fight. I like, um, it's, it's a problem. These movies always have where they, they always set fights in the easiest, like wherever's going to be easiest to mat. So it's just like mm-hmm. a bridge. It's not an even airport. Like the, yeah. Yeah. Like, again, bringing up the Raimi films, like the, the, I know that there's a big fight on the train track, but it's, it's, like the bank is like a weird, like interesting looking and like, I don't know the big, the big uh, auto's big weird layer. Like that stuff is more dynamic looking than, than just like gray bridge. So I want to, um, I want to talk about how an MCU strength almost turned it has turned into a weakness over the years. Um, I would say, I think phase two is really where, I mean, Avengers, that first 2012 movie is really like, okay, this is a billion dollar property and these are, uh, really good or, or, you know, enjoyable films and everyone kind of likes them. But phase two is kind of where they figured it out. Uh, I'm thinking like Iron Man three, the winter soldier and guardians of the galaxy specifically. Um, those are like, oh, these movies can be just good. Um, as opposed to, you know, kind of just popcorn filler. And I think those movies are popcorn stuff too, but, um, so what the allure was at this time is Marvel had this machine as like, hey, let's get these, you know, kind of n- not really popular directors, maybe directors associated with TV or independent film. I'm thinking the Russo brothers, Taika Waititi, uh, James Gunn. You will get them in and we'll have them do all the character kind of stuff. And then don't worry, the Marvel machine will handle all the action set pieces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that worked great for those, that set of films. But now, kind of looking back on it, it's almost become a weakness because when you visit, revisit the Raimi movies, 
you realize that's Raimi's lens that's like figuring out the action sequences, how Doc Ock's arms are going, how they're going to shoot this train sequence. It all feels of a piece with Raimi. Whereas now, a lot of times, the action sequences can feel disjointed from the rest of it. I really think of the last episode of WandaVision, um, where they had this, you know, really nice character story about Wanda and Vision and Agatha Harkness. And then the last uh, episode is basically flying around CGI, space lasers, you know, just very generic um, action sequences that really didn't feel like it had any kind of voice to the camera. Um, and I think yeah. that's kind of where the MCU is kind of has to, I think they really need to relook at how they're doing this and maybe Raimi doing Dr. Strange too will help bring that back. Well, and, and I will say it's slightly better. Shang-Chi was a little better. And in this, it's a little better because it's still mostly like fist fights, which mm-hmm. I think helps mitigate some of that, but it's, it can still be just be like, just dull. I it, like in a weird way, they become more like comic books where they act like a lot of comic books, just, just like action. And it's just like completely incomprehensible. It's boring or incomprehensible. And then the fighting ends and you go back to character stuff. But like, it's really not like, it's not how these movies were made for a while. And I think they were just more entertaining then. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think, um, kind of handing over the action scenes to the Marvel machine. Cause, um, you know, I I don't think the last battle of Endgame looks great, but it's at least, you know, kind of satisfying in its own ways relative to its context. Um, but like they were they were what's it called, creating that like years before Endgame was even in pre-production. Um they were like rendering that big fight scene and like all the special effects and the aliens and the Chitari and Thanos and his black order. Um and it's just like when you're doing that, you're not you're not allowing directors to really dictate how action sequence should be paced, how they should look, what kind of angles are we using and stuff like that. And I think it's just something that feels a lot worse now. Whereas at, you know, back in 2014, we're like, I'm, it's cool that they're doing this because that way you can get these smaller directors in there to yeah. tell their stories. Well, there's, there's also, there's also another, um, so it, it's hard to really talk about this without getting super political, but like, there's a reason they're relying more on CG stuff for this than stunt performers, and it's because it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, CG industry, a lot of the effects industry is not not unionized in any real way. Yeah. So they can have they can have these people do a year's worth of special effects in three months and pay them less. Like, there's a lot, there's a lot of competition in that field for like shoddy craftsmanship. For like, I can do it. I can do this faster and. It doesn't matter if it's good. Like who can do it quick, who can do it quickest and cheapest is who gets the job. And Disney, Disney loves. Uh, they they don't care. Like they don't care if it looks bad as long as it looks not distractingly bad. And then they can just grade out the color to make it match anyway. So it's just, I don't know. It's not a big issue in this movie mm-hmm. because I, I think there's more green screen in this movie than there is like pure CG, which still does look better to me. But. um yeah, I don't know. And this isn't like a huge, there's a big action scene at the end, but even that, it's a pretty intimate, small scale one that I, I, I thought was pretty good. But yeah, it's, it's still a big issue with these movies. Eternals was miserable looking for most of its runtime. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, a lot of this criticism, I do feel, I think applause applies broadly to the MCU and of the films this year, Spider Man suffers the least for it. Um, mm-hmm. you definitely feel it in Black Widow and the ending of Shang-Chi, which I was hoping would just be like a straight up Kung Fu scene ends up being, you know, floating with, you know, rings and black smoke. And it's just all kind of mushy. Um, I think this movie does a much better job, uh, compared to everything else that came out this year. Yeah. 
returning to the action sequence between Ock and Ada, or sorry, between Ock and Spider-Man, um, Doc Ock uh, pins him underneath a bridge and he tries to absorb Peter's nanotechnology. Um, but in the process, uh, Peter, uh, again, because he's got all that stark gadgetry to start out, is able to use the nano machines to take control of Ock's arms instead. He's able to capture Doc Ock and use Doc Ock to help save that admissions agent whose car was about to uh, plummet off the bridge, um, help her put it back. Uh, she says, hey, I'm going to try and get you and your friends back into college, which is, you know, a small victory for Peter. Um, but the bigger thing is um, when uh, Peter unmasked himself, Doc Ock is like, you're not Peter Parker, or at least not the one he knows. And then, uh, you know, this confuses our Peter Parker, Tom Holland, and they're about to figure out what the hell is going on. But uh, Peter Parker's spider sense uh, comes in again. There's a lot of spider sense in this movie. They get a lot of play out of it, which I think is good. Mm hmm. Um, and I have a fun note about that when we get to the strange fight, but, um, so that he uses the spider sense and the green goblin emerges full in, uh, his green armor and on his glider. And it looks like we're going to have another fight sequence before, uh, the Dr. Strange portal sucks in both Otto and, uh, Spider-Man back to the Sanctum Santorum. Um, we find Otto's been imprisoned and alongside him is this, is the lizard, um, as played by Reese Fons in The Amazing Spider-Man, the Andrew Garfield movie. And Doctor Strange lets us know that when they tried to cast their spell, um, other creatures tried to break in from uh, the other universes, and uh, Strange was able to capture the lizard. Well, I think what the specific explanation is that it the spell reversed, and instead of erasing Peter Parker's identity, it started pulling in people who know Peter Parker's identity mm -hmm. from other universes, which... Yeah. There's a there's a question I have about that for the one of the post credit sequences, but it's not that important. Um, and you know they can just like go right over it. I don't really care that much. But um, I, I think it's a sort of inelegant, but but still sort of made more sense than I was expecting. I was expecting this, him to just be like, "Here's villains from other movies." <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I like it. And when we get to kind of when these uh characters were brought in from their timelines. I think they had, that mm -hmm. has a nice touch to it. But mm -hmm. um, going back to the scene where uh, Strange first started casting that spell, um, you can see like silhouettes of the lizard uh, when they're kind of breaking the multiverse, like kind of shining through um, that would foreshadow their arrival into this universe. So um, I, I think it's one of those scenes that people are going to, you know, freeze frame and try to pick apart all the little characters that are in those kind of multiverse breaking sequences to see who else they can spot. And there's another one later in the film that we'll talk about a little more. Um. So uh, we're back at the Sanctum Santorum, and uh, we have, you know, two of the villains captured, um, Otto and uh, the lizard. The lizard's not really speaking. He just seems like an animal at this point. Um, but Otto is really trying to figure out, hey, where the hell am I? Um, and, you know, the answer of a wizard's dungeon doesn't really do a whole lot for him. Um, he doesn't really understand what's going on, where he is. And then, you know, Dr. Strange is like, hey, this is your mess, Peter. We have to start figuring out who has broken in through other universes. And he gives him basically a magical web shooter that will allow him to capture um, any stray multiversal villains and send them back to the Sanctum Santorum uh, so that Strange can reverse the spell and send them back. At this point, Peter brings in MJ and Ned to help him out. Um, and they basically start scouring the internet uh, looking for... Um, you know, any news or any mention of any of these other villains. And their first hit is the outside of a military installation. 
um, outside of New York. Um, I think somewhere in New Jersey, they said. And they said there was a flying monster, which uh, Peter assumes is the Green Goblin character. Um, though before he heads out, Doc Ock does let him know that it can't be the Green Goblin or it can't be Norman Osborn, who he thinks it is. Uh, because Norman Osborn died in his universe. Um, so he's either, you know, chasing someone else or he's chasing a ghost, uh, which we'll come back to in a little bit. Uh, Peter then goes out to where this uh, sighting occurred. And here he comes face to face with not only uh, Jamie Foxx uh, playing Electro, um, but also Thomas Hayden Church, who was the Sandman in Spider-Man 3. And, uh, if uh, you don't recall, at the end of Spider-Man 3, uh, the Sandman or Flint Marco kind of had a face turn near the end of the movie. Um, he was kind of a sympathetic villain of sorts, uh, and uh, he kind of like kind of disappeared off into the wind at the end of Spider-Man 3. So when he uh, shows up here, he sh- uh, shows himself to Peter, who's fully in a Spider-Man uh, uh, costume, and says, hey, I'm here to help you. Let's take this guy out. And Peter starts kind of mentioning, hey, I'm not your Peter, but let's let's deal with Electro and then... Um, figure it out uh, afterwards. Uh, one thing I do like, at least in the setup to the scene, is they do have a nice scene of uh, Peter swinging over to this location. Um, that's kind of like a horizontal, like him, like uh, web slinging across the electrical poles that I thought looked nice. Um, there aren't many shots that I'm going to say, oh, that was a cool shot from this movie, but um, I think that one was pretty solid. So there's a few, I'm wondering how much of this movie was inspired by, I mean, obviously a lot was inspired by Into the Spider-Verse, but specifically by the Spider-Man 27, or the 2018 Spider-Man game. And I feel like that kind of feels like a Spider-Verse bit, where they're like, he's not in the city, so he has to like make do with what he swings off of. And then, um, very specifically, all the Aunt May stuff at Feast and all that, I think, is mm-hmm. from that game. No, I, I think very much so. And even uh, later on, uh, when uh, Spider-Man takes back his um, takes back some of that nano machinery uh, from Otto and applies it to his kind of more cloth or you know textile suit, um, it kind of has the Spider-Man that goes all the way across his chest, very similar to kind of the spider designs in that video game as well. So basically, they're able to subdue Electro, uh, basically pull the plug on him. Um, so he's basically just hot, naked Jamie Foxx out in the middle of the forest. Um, and like you mentioned, I think Jamie Foxx is having a lot of fun this time. His character doesn't suck as much, and he's basically just allowed to be Jamie Foxx. Um, and uh, basically, Peter zaps him back to um, the Sanctum Santorum with that magic web shooter. And Clint's like, wait, what are you doing? Or Flint, sorry, is like, what are you doing to us? Um, but uh, Spider-Man is able to uh, shoot the Sandman back there as well. Um, and then we kind of start getting some dialogue between villains, as now we have four uh, people captured in Doctor Strange's dungeon. Uh, while this is all happening, we get our first proper look at Willem Dafoe. Um, we see uh, Norman Osborn is kind of going crazy in an alley somewhere. Um, it seems to be Norman fighting with his Green Goblin persona um, from the Raimi films. Uh, kind of the Green Goblin is a persona within Norman Osborn that kind of takes over, even though Norman himself has, you know, some unseemly characteristics of his own. Um, and he kind of hides his glider and some of his armor, um, and he smashes his own Green Goblin helmet. And then he decides to go to Feast um, because supposedly Feast is associated with, you know, Spider-Man. And he's actually looking for help. So he seeks out Aunt May. Um, and once he shows up, Aunt May calls Peter uh, to come over and say, hey, one of the guys you're looking for, he's he's here. If I remember correctly, in the Raimi movies, 
he's when he's wearing the mask, he is Green Goblin. When he's not, he's still Norman Osborn. And so I feel like um, that was supposed to signify that he's like you're supposed to think that he's he's um, when he destroys the helmet, he's silenced Green Goblin, and Green Goblin is gone momentarily. But but as we remember from the Raimi Spider-Man movie. Um, Green Goblin also is able to trick people into thinking that, and I think that's what's happening for pretty much the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, a lot of the times uh, you would have those cool mirror scenes yeah. in those Raimi films where he's talking to himself, and that's the kind of time they play, you know, him as Goblin more as Willem De- uh, Willem Dafoe. Um, and then there's the Thanksgiving dinner scene, but he's clearly the Goblin during that entire scene. Yes, um, he's just playing it as Norman Osborn. So uh, he shows up, and uh, Peter's like, okay. Uh, well, first, uh, Willem Dafoe, sorry, Norman Osborn's like, well, you're not the Peter Parker I know. Um, but Aunt May's like, we got to help him. He's kind of lost in his mind on top of being lost in the universe. And uh, one thing I kind of liked about this is that um, Norman Osborn has, like, died and come back so many times uh, in the comics. There have been a lot of retcons, a lot of amnesias, um, a lot of various, you know, kind of contrivances to allow them to reinsert Norman Osborn back into the Spider-Man stories uh, without having to, like, upend 60 years of continuity. And this kind of felt like that. Mm. I don't say it's like they're trying to adapt anything specifically, but there have been so many retcons with Norman Osborn over the years in the Marvel 616 that this kind of felt natural in a way. Or I don't I don't know how to quite describe it. No, I felt, I felt right. Yeah. Um, like him being kind of out of sorts and maybe playing this long game and also being a little bit insane and having some kind of memory issues, all that feels very organic to uh, Norman Osborn over the years. He still his 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 mind has to reconcile it from uh, when he got stabbed in the dick at the end of Spider Man One. Remember that? Oh where yeah, where he he, he takes his glider, his own glider to the dick. Like there's, I mean, come on, it's well below his hips is where he gets hit by that thing. So yeah, yeah. So uh, during this uh, sequence, you know, Aunt May's like, you can't just send them back to their own universes because that's really just punting on the problem. You're not actually trying to help people. Um, the purpose of Feast, the purpose that you do your Spider-Man thing is to help people. Um, so it's a little bit complicated, but it seems like May kind of gets through to Peter and Peter and May drive with uh, Norman Osborn back to the Sanctum Santorum. Um, during this, we realize that J. Jonah Jameson has a tail on Peter, um, which will pay off a little bit later. Um, so when they arrive back with Norman, um, there's kind of a whole set of revelations that happen because when Octavius mm-hmm. sees Norman, um, they both know each other because I think they both had their interactions with Oscorp. Um, that's more explicit in the comics. Uh, Spider-Man 2 didn't really have Otto necessarily directly connected with Norman, but more so Harry Osborn. Um, but it's very easy uh, logic to jump. But like saying the ultimate, yeah, 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 they're both they're both into like fringe science stuff, and it's it. I think it's implied mm-hmm. a little bit that um, Otto had gone to Oscar for funding before, and and Norman either rejected him out of like jealousy or spite or just not wanting. To, and so I think there's some stuff in there that Harry is sort of picking up on that, and 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 Otto is like, oh, finally, finally, Oscorp stepping mm-hmm. in, which is. It's fine. It, ma- it makes perfect sense they would know each other. In both uh, the Ultimate Spider-Man comics, the one written by Brian Michael Bendis for the Ultimate Universe, um, Otto is a direct employee of Norman mm-hmm. uh, in that first uh, series. And then in the Spider-Man 2018 PS4 game that you mentioned earlier, um, they are like direct competitors and yeah. they interact a decent amount in that game. 
Um, and I think this is actually kind of cool in a way, in the sense that I would say these are the 1A and 1B Spider-Man villains. Um, all apologies to Venom, but I generally like these two guys the most. Yes. And they kind of have the, the most history with uh, Spider-Man. So um, kind of combining them and being able to see them in the same narrative is kind of cool because the way most comic book movies work is there's usually just one big bad and then everyone else is kind of henchmen around them. But you really get that kind of 1A, 1B feeling between these two guys. And they're two great actors, which makes it all the better. Yeah. So, like, hey, you disrespect uh, New Goblin. That's what he's called in Spider-Man Three, not Hobgoblin. He's New Goblin. Oh, I see. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, I like that. There's, there's, there. I, they don't think they even mention Harry by name because I, I just think they, they don't want any associations with with James Franco. Which is fair, um, James Franco. No, yeah, nor should you. Um, has been me tooed. Um, I don't have the specific allegations in front of me. This might not be the space to try to dig that up, but um, he is rightfully not included in any of this. So um, on top of all the Otto, um, what's it called? Otto Norman uh, crosstalk, there's also the Sandman champs. And is actually, you're both dead, not just Norman, but Octavius also died fighting Spider-Man. And then uh, what's it called? Uh, The Lizard and uh, Electro, who are from the same universe, is like, oh, I I was about to kill Spider-Man in my universe before I zapped here too. And this is kind of where they realize that all these heroes, or villains rather, were brought into this universe just moments before they were supposed to die, not necessarily at Spider-Man's hands, but in conflict with Spider-Man. And um, Strange shows up at this point point, is like, okay, you captured these guys, it's time to send them back. And then Peter's like, well, if we send them back, they're, they're probably going to die. And Strange is like, well, you know, them's the breaks, you know? Uh, we have a multiverse to look after. We can't worry about a couple of guys who are destined to die in their universe anyways. Um, but, you know, after some, you know, kind of unsure glances at his friends, uh, Peter decides to steal the box that uh, Strange had trapped, uh, trapped the spell in. Almost literal MacGuffin. Yeah, it is a literal MacGuffin. And uh, they, and, you know, he traps uh, Doctor Strange very temporarily in his own dungeon. Um, and then he starts, uh, you know, leaving or he runs out of the Sanctum Santorum. And then we basically get a full-on uh, Doctor Strange versus uh, Spider-Man fight, which, you know, as a fan of Steve Ditko's uh, comics, um, I, th- I thought this was pretty delightful. Um, it was really fun to see how they use their powers. We'd see um, Pir- uh, Spider-Man try to swing away, but then uh, Doctor Strange would open a portal that the opposite end would be right behind Peter, so Peter would end up kind of tying himself up uh, with his own webs, which was kind of neat. Now he's thinking with portals, is what I was what I was said doing that. That's almost a portal two gag. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's also um, there's uh, what's it called the astral projection moment, uh, kind of set up by the previous Doctor Strange and Ancient One stuff. Is you can knock out the uh, person inside of their physical body into the astral plane. Uh, we saw that with Strange in uh, his movie. We saw that with Bruce Banner and the Hulk in Endgame. Um, but we see this happen with Peter as well. So he's kind of floating, you know, outside of his own body, outside of his Spider-Man body. But um, as uh, Strange tries to take back the physical MacGuffin from this uh, physical Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Man is kind of avoiding all of Steven's grabs, which is presumably the spider sense. Mm-hmm. And if you actually look at Peter's astral projection um, at this moment, you will see there are little like squiggly lines coming out of Peter's head. Um, they're very faint. They're not colored, but you can actually see that like kind of 
what's it called, break in the way that things look. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to kind of be the traditional Spider-Sense uh, depiction in the comics, which were usually depicted with squiggly black lines outside of Peter's head, which I thought was a cool touch. Um, and it's also kind of cool that uh, regardless of where Peter is astrally, that his Spider-Sense is so instinctual that no matter what happens, it's... Um, it's kind of still working, even if he's not, if he's kind of having an out of body experience. Peter has mastered Ultra Instinct, is what I'll say. That's a that's a Dragon Ball Super joke. I don't. Know, you... <laughs> to be fair, this is kind of like if you're going to have big team up or crossover comic book movies or even comic books, this is the kind of stuff you want to see. Um, you don't want it to be too long because you don't want heroes fighting when you know in the end they're going to team up again or whatever. Um, but you do want to see some of this kind of stuff. Uh, it is fun and it kind of leads us into a larger, um, set piece that's set in the mirror universe, which is basically, um, a fake universe that's kind of a mirror of our reality. But Doctor Strange is able to manipulate it at will. He could, you know, open up buildings, fold them upon each other, you know, do all that inception stuff we saw in Doctor Strange. Um, and I thought it was pretty fun. Um, you know, it is very heavy CGI stuff. There's really no way to do it any other way. No, that, that's like, that's, that's excusable. Like, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. You're not going to build sets to do that kind of stuff, really. So Christopher Nolan would, but Christopher Nolan would spend 45 minutes in the, in the, in the movie to justify it. Mm-hmm. No, that, I don't have, I have no problem with that. That make, That's perfectly reasonable. I thought it, for what it was, I thought it looked pretty good. Um, there did a lot of fun stuff like Peter falling through infinite portals. Um, it, it just, it's kind of, it's a way to kind of web sling around New York, but do it a little bit differently. Um, and it's, you know, it's just fun. I think they do a lot of creative stuff in here. Um, and I like the ultimate resolution is Peter kind of understands that, oh, this is all kind of like fractals or geometry or something like that, that there's, the way that the universe kind of spins out in this kaleidoscope manner is kind of governed by some rules and he's able to use it to figure out how to web up strange and take back, um, the MacGuffin. Uh, so I, I thought that was, you know, I thought that was a really enjoyable set piece. Um, I think, you know, Steve Ditko probably rolling around in his grave that his, you know, properties being used like this, but I think it's a great way to kind of show those two Ditko creations going at it. That feels true to both of those characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with uh, Steven trapped in the mirror universe for some time, uh, Peter returns back to uh, the Sanctum Santorum where MJ, Ned, and the villains still are, and he decides we're going to cure them. Um, and by cure them, he means, you know, try to resolve whatever, you know, what turns Electro into electricity or why, you know, Doc Ock's tentacles make his decisions for him, yada, yada. Um, so along those lines, they all go back to Happy's apartment where uh, Peter and May had been living ever since uh, his identity was revealed. And there's um, basically a stark, I forgot what he calls it, a fabricator, fabricator maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's basically what Peter used to design his suit at the end of Far From Home. Um, it basically can just make stuff, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better word. And this is where we see... Um, Peter, but also with a little help from Norman and Octavius, um, because basically every Spider-Man villain is a scientist (laughs) to some degree, um, as is Peter. There's something of a scientist themselves. Oh, at which a line they specifically drop at this moment. Um, So uh, they all kind of help in and they start, you know, kind of pitching in, coming up with ideas to kind of help everyone. Um, The first one to go is Doc Ock. Um, They recreate the inhibitor chip that was supposed to keep his tentacles at bay in Spider-Man 2. Um, and they, uh, after, you know, Ock fights back for just a little bit, he's still controlled by Peter's nanotech. 
Um, he installs the new uh, inhibitor chip and uh, Doc Ock, or rather Otto Octavius, comes back to the forefront and he is pretty much, quote unquote, cured or fixed or, you know, he's he's in control now. It's not the tentacles. It's just more, it's just more or less what happens at the end of Spider-Man 2. I think they make a, uh, a point of of hinting that he was actually pulled from slightly earlier like not the not the point where he's drowning because at that point he'd been reformed yeah it would have to be um prior before uh what's it called peter parker and his universe gave him the pep talk about how intelligence is a responsibility um you know it's a gift and we have to use it well um it has to have been either before spider-man showed up at the end of spider-man 2 or even like because he revealed well he reveals his identity to ock during that so it's some it doesn't really matter that much, but it has to be like between. I don't know. It doesn't really make sense because I don't really think there's a, there's a spot that it would work. Um, one thing I do like overall about Otto Octavius in this movie is even in the previous parts we described, where he's you know kind of a villain, he's a lot more hesitant and he's not like a maniacal villain like say uh, Osborne is or even Electro. Um, there's a little bit of it seems like conflict in him, and basically once Peter cures him, he's straight up good for the rest of the movie which i actually like i think that's true to um the way that spider-man 2 uh, octavius was in the end mm-hmm. um next up they devised cures for Os- uh norman osborne and max dylan aka electro uh but they just create the stuff um and uh they're about to like finish uh you know something at the fabricator when peter's uh spider sense just starts going haywire um and then he just kind of goes out into the living room and starts staring down all the villains to see like is one of them about to break and then he webs up norman osborne and this is when the green goblin kind of comes out in full um and basically says you don't you you don't have to fix us we're we're fucking gods um and this sort of speech really resonates with max dylan who was already kind of he was definitely coded more villainish than say octavius like we were talking about um so you know Dylan rejects his fix, um, and he uh, kind of blasts away. Sandman flies away at this point, and we get a big old uh, Goblin Peter fight Lizard, at this point. Lizard shows up again. He was in a truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and all throughout this, uh, J. Jonah Jameson has showed up at Happy's apartment complex and um, is trying to film about what's going to go down. So... Um, so the whole point is uh, most of the other villains escape. Uh, Octavius, who is kind of a good guy, he just kind of gets blasted out the window and then kind of runs off on his own. Um, Dylan and uh, Sandman kind of escape on their own, and that basically just leaves us with uh, Goblin and Spider-Man. Um, Aunt May has uh, has the cure and some of the other stuff they had built, and you know Peter tells her to run, get the hell out of there. Um, and then we get a pretty solid uh, Goblin-Peter uh, fight. Um, the lizard shows up very briefly to throw Peter back towards the goblin, but it's pretty much straight up uh, Willem Dafoe and Spider-Man. And, you know, I, Willem Dafoe, to his credit, did a lot of the stunts for this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see him flying around. We see him punching. Um, there's a couple power bombs uh, in the sequence, uh, which is kind of cool uh, if you're a pro wrestling fan. Um, and we get, like, the classic. It's almost very Batman jokery from The Dark Knight where uh, Peter's wailing away on Willem Dafoe, but he's just doing the goblin laugh. Um, and then he proceeds to power bomb him through a couple floors, which is pretty cool. I feel like six floors. <laughs> yeah. They they go a little overboard. I Like, I don't mind it, but they, they don't really... 
There's not really a point in, in the original Spider-Man where you really, they really hammer home that the Goblin Serum gives him super strength, but he has super strength here. He's Captain America level super strength, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a pretty entertaining, uh, set piece overall. A good fight sequences. You can see that, uh, Defoe and Holland are actually in there for a little bit, which is nice. Um, and it's, it's a lot less choppy and a lot fewer cuts than I'm used to in these kind of yeah. uh, MCU action sequences, which I really appreciate. Um, the, even if it doesn't always look great in terms of, say, color palette or, compo- or you know, screen composition, mise-en-scene, you can at least see what's happening without a lot of annoying cuts or shaky cam or any of that stuff. I like that I like that uh, Goblin's outfit gets shredded and she's just wearing his gigantic armor underneath somehow. Mm-hmm. And this is something, you know, the MC has done, but I do like that uh, his, uh, like, kind of his hobo outfit was a green coat over a purple hoodie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, just keeping the Goblin colors alive. Um, there isn't a lot of purple in the original Goblin design from the Raimi film. It's mostly green. Uh, so it's kind of nice to get a little splash of purple in there. Again, it's also very Jokerish to some extent. Yeah. Um, and I just have in my notes that I just, I love Willem Dafoe. Um, it's, he, he's having a blast for, for not, for nothing else. He's having a great time. And I, I, I love to see that for him. Yeah. He was having a great time the first time. You could tell he really just wanted to do it again. He really enjoyed it. He, he still talks very highly of that experience with the first movie. Mm-hmm. And just said it was a lot of fun. It was, it was just, I mean, listen, he's, you just give an actor like that, you just basically just give him free range, like to chew scenery as much as they want. They're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I have, I have some problems with them not really doing any, like there's no cool mirror scenes. There's none of those weird Sam Raimi angles to really take advantage of his his proportions and his his performance it's more just kind of flatly shot like a lot of marvel movies but i will give them credit um one of the reasons i guess they they destroyed his helmet and got his helmet out of there is because like they apparently this was kevin a kevin feige thing was that they uh they realized you don't really need that crazy helmet when you have willem defoe's face which looks pretty it could be contorted to be pretty insane goblinish proportions as it is so so I'm going nuts. I will also say, and this is more, I think, credit to him. I, I don't want to say it's a credit to him because it makes it sound like I'm bashing Alfred Molina, who's like not a young man. But uh, it's very obvious they had to do a lot less de-aging with him. They de-aged Molina fairly heavily, and it looks fine. Um, it looks, it, it, but he definitely looks like older than he did in Spider-Man Two, and that's with the de-aging already going. Often Molina looks a lot older now. But, you know, he's in his sixties, yeah. so it's not. He still looks fine. But he does not look like he did 20 years ago. But Willem Dafoe looks a lot closer to what he did 20 years ago. I don't think they had to do too much. No, I agree with that. And just along those lines, this is probably why um, the Sandman was the CGI version of himself throughout the film until the Mm -hmm. very end. Mm -hmm. um, Because Thomas Hayden Church has more visibly aged than the rest. And it probably just made sense to just have him be Sandman. So Lizard, does Lizard die in Amazing Spider-Man 1? I don't remember. I, I don't remember either. I, cause Sandman does not die. I think, I think the implication they had is that, um, this is not like Sandman's the one who's not going to die. Mm-hmm. Like he's still, he was still alive and probably active in the Raimi universe. Right. Like just like, just like spoiler alert, somebody else was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think, I, I think, I think it's, I think that would have made more sense if he was, they could have done that, but I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's, it's convoluted. It's not necessarily doesn't make that much sense 
Doesn't have to. Yeah. It's kind of like Metal Gear Solid 4, where they're trying to take things that were never meant to be that closely connected and try to make a singular plot line mm-hmm. out of it. So some work better than others. I think it works best for, you know... The main guys. Otto yeah. and Osborne and Dylan. Um, and that's probably why the Lizard and Sandman probably get a lot less of the screen time compared to the other three. Um, so at this point, um, their battle takes them to the first floor of Happy's condo building. And uh, Aunt May stumbles across them here. And while Norman is beating down on Peter, she tries to sneak up on him and inject him with their cure for the goblin. Um, but it doesn't really work, uh, which the, Norman just says, hey, it didn't work. But it could have been one of those things where Norman made sure that when they were devising yes, that's it, what I assumed. Uh, th- that it wouldn't work. Like it was all part of a feint. Uh, so uh, and then at this point, you know, Aunt May kind of grabs like a it looks like a club, but I think it's like an electrical like like a steel a, thing. A that, thing, yeah. It's a piping, whatever it is. Um, but she's about to, she's like, you know, I'll fight you. And, you know, Peter's like, run, May, just run, get out of here. Um, and, you know, during all this, uh, Osborne has reactivated his green goblin glider and it kind of flies in and, uh, hip checks, uh, Aunt May quite violently. Um, and, uh, that, you know, leads Peter to, you know, like kind of get up and get his bearings again. Um, and then the green goblin throws one of his pumpkin bombs. Peter bats it away, but it kind of blows up around him and May. Um, and the green goblin escapes. Um, and at this point, uh, we, you know, Peter tries to, you know, look after May and May is actually the first one to get up. She stands up, um, and looks for Peter. Um, and, you know, Peter's like, I'm, I'm here, I'm struggling, but I'm, you know, here, um, we, we got to send them back to the universe. You know, we got to get rid of them. And then Aunt May once again is like, no, you're just punting on the problem. You got to help them. That's, that's what we're do. That's what we do. Um, and then we get, you know, the very famous Spider-Man line drop. Um, and she says, you know, with great power, there must also come great responsibility, which is a little bit longer phrasing uh, than those who have only known that from the Raimi movies might know. Um, but that is actually how Stanley worded it in the very first Amazing Fantasy 15, the first appearance of Spider-Man back in 1963. Um, it did have those extra words. There must also um, come great responsibility. So I did like that they specifically went back to that one. So it wasn't just a refrain of the other two Spider-Man franchises and that they also gave it to Aunt May because traditionally that line comes from uncle Ben, That's an uncle ben but line. I think that there, yeah, I think the third time out um, with a specific iteration that hasn't really played in the uncle Ben space, it makes sense to give it to Aunt May. I think that's a nice deviation that still feels true to Spider-Man mythos. Um, while giving it a little bit of a fresh twist. It's not that big of a twist because we've heard may echo Uncle Ben's words before in previous iterations, um, but at least for this specific MCU universe, it's well. I think, I think nice and, and we can we can go ahead and I think we can move on here to the 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 meat of the story. But I think I think it's implied that that's something Uncle Ben also said in this universe mm, because Uncle Ben sure. says it in every universe. Because yeah, as we're about to find out, we're going to get firsthand experience, uh, firsthand uh, a testimony of that from the other two Spider Men who show up around this time. Yay! Yes, so. Um, just to put a cap around this, Aunt May does die here. Um, she, uh, you know, she, she was faking that she was fine, but when her and Peter tried to crawl out or, you know, walk out of the building, she collapses and Peter finds that she has a really big gash on her side. Um, you get a shot of him seeing blood on his hand. Um, and he's like, you know, 
he is a kid, you know, he's a kid with someone dying in front of him. Um, he's broken up. He, he doesn't want to leave her. He says she'll be okay. Um, and the troops, the damage control people that are about to come in are not here with first aid. Um, they are here with assault rifles. Um, and they, they open fire on Peter. I think he actually gets shot in the shoulder. Um, and then he just stares them down, but he ends up disappearing and running from there. Um, so this is where we get to the big stuff because we cut back to MJ and Ned who are at Ned's mom's wherever apartment condo house. And, uh, they're about to, uh, they were given the MacGuffin when Peter went to cure them. He's like, if things go sideways, you at least have it and you can press the button and the villains won't know where it is. Um, so she's about to press it. And then Ned, you know, says something like, I just wish Spider-Man was here. And he had, uh, Dr. Strange's, um, portal ring um, peter yeah. had lifted it off uh dr strange during that big mirror universe fight sorry for missing that beat um but ned opens a portal and uh we see spider-man in an alley and they're like hey peter spider-man come come let's talk let's regroup let's regroup and you know who walks in through that portal is not tom holland spider-man but it is andrew garfield from the amazing spider-man uh movies from about 10 years ago um and uh, this is all like, wait, you're Spider-Man? And then they start pacing together that it's not the right Spider-Man because, you know, Andrew Garfield starts talking about how he was in his own universe doing something. Then all of a sudden he was here and he saw that there's another Spider-Man in this universe, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, MJ's like, prove it, starts throwing bread at him. Um, this is a part where I think they could have started dispensing with the MCU humor jokes, especially mm-hmm. with Ned and his mom. It's kind of cute, but there's a little too many of them. Um because at this point, everyone just wants to focus on Andrew Garfield and, of course, the guy who's going to show up next. That is, of course, Tobey Maguire, uh, who was the original Spider-Man from the Raimi films. And he walks in uh, dressed as a youth pastor, as they say in the film. Uh, but basically, they're like, we got to team up and uh, we got to find uh, this universe's Peter and go talk to him. Uh, before we get to all that... Um, I, th- I think it's important, too. I think some people have... have- I've seen people question how they knew Peter's in trouble, and it's like, well, he's on, he's like all over the news. There's, yeah, like they go out of the way to show you earlier in the movie that there's a bunch of like signs of him up, the billboards, all sorts of shit everywhere, calling him public mm-hmm. enemy number one. So I figure as soon as the other two Spider Men came through, they were like, they, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there'd be, they'd both pretty quickly see like. Hey, that's not me, but that's a Spider-Man who's in trouble. I'm going to go help him. Right. Because that's what they would do. And that, that really, like, that actually does track really well with me. It's if, if, if Spider-Man was just any, any version of Spider-Man shows up in a weird universe and sees a Spider-Man is in trouble. He's like, well, I'm going to, let's go find him. Yeah. Uh, we saw that in Spider-Verse and basically every Spider-Verse iteration in the comics is basically the same way. Um, not to get all cliche, but it's, that great responsibility thing. They feel responsibility whenever um, this kind of thing happens to one of them in, in whatever universe. So um, I will say, I know uh, theater reactions can be kind of annoying, um, but like my theater just absolutely exploded uh, for all of this. Um, I think it took people a second to realize when they opened that first porter to Andrew, Andrew Garfield, that it wasn't going to be, um, Tom Holland, like they just thought it was Spider-Man, you know, whatever. And then when he started coming forward, you could just kind of feel that in the audience. They're like, oh, 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 this is the thing. This is the thing. And then, of course, as soon as he steps in, Andrew Garfield pulls off um, his mask. And then everyone knew what was happening. At this I, point. I didn't even it was weird because like I didn't have I was I was 
very pleasantly surprised. I didn't really, I had people reacting normally, like people, like they would clap a little bit or something. One guy went, which is fine. The thing I was always worried about is when you get the people who are like competing to be on reaction compilation YouTube videos. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, that's, that was worse with any, any, any movie that, that uh, Robert Downey Jr. was in. If he'd make like a simple reference and people laughing, you know, people laugh at like a, uh, like a comedy set when it, but like when there's not a whole lot of laughter and you always get one of the people who is like gutturally laughing at like a B tier joke. It's like that. It's, it's, it's performative stuff and it's, it's really annoying. Thankfully, I didn't really get it in this. I actually really got it in the, uh, the second post credits thing. I had a really funny one. I wonder if somebody was looking at their phone or not, but when, um, in the, in the Doctor Strange trailer, there's a moment where he shows up to talk to Wanda. They show Wanda. Then they show a reaction shot of Strange. Then they show Wanda again, and then he says her name. And then three seconds after that, some guy went, "No way!" And I was like, "Are you okay, sir?" <laughs> like fourteen. He had a brief stroke there. Yeah, like like he his he was so he was the, the most stoned man in history. He had like a nine second delay on his break. I, I assume he was looking at his phone or something. I just laughed at that, but that was the only time it got annoying. And at that point, I don't give a shit. During the movie, it was fine, and I was very happy with that. Yeah. Um, and I think it would, they rightly, um, had Garfield come first so that they could basically prime you for Toby, who is definitely the more anticipated of the two, yeah. just because his f- films are remembered a lot better, um, because they are better. Um, but you know, also good for Andrew Garfield. They gave him, um, they gave him some good stuff here. And, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of feel bad because I don't think he was bad. I like him and Emma Stone were the best part of his movies. Um, it's just, they those were the most like corporate by the book yeah. storytelling for Spider-Man. Even worse, I had some problems. There's a lot of problems with uh, anything to do with his parents in those movies was really dumb. But I specifically mm-hmm. didn't like. It's not Andrew Garfield's fault. I didn't like that they made him into like a skater because like again, Peter is supposed to be a uh, absolute dork. Like I, even mm-hmm. the Tom Holland one, I don't know if they fully got that. Where Tobey Maguire's just like the. The first half of both those first two movies do a lot of just shitting on him. It's like, this guy sucks. But um, mm-hmm. the Andrew Garfield one, like, there's no way. Part of it is just that he's kind of tall. Yeah. And there's no way that guy who looks like that with that hair who skateboards would be, like, a weird loner in high school. Like, no, that guy would be. <laughs> Women would be throwing themselves at him. It feels like, oh, well, if Peter's more of a regular guy, you know, it'll play better and fly over. It's like, feels very much like, oh, he should be a little bit cooler. Let's rostify him by 10% kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It feels very, that's where I say, like, it feels very corporate boardroom. Mm-hmm. It feels like they were too worried if he was too nerdy, he wouldn't be super relatable. Um, so then, you know, they kind of just ease that out. Um, in fact, uh, Tom Holland's debut in uh, Captain America Civil War, uh, the first shot of him carrying a keyboard um, is supposed to mimic a shot from uh, The Amazing Spider-Man where Andrew Garfield is carrying a skateboard. Um, so it's kind of supposed to show, hey, we got it right. He's, you know, carrying the right thing here. So and that, that seems like a minor thing, but it really is like Peter. Peter can't be a skater. I think that's why he's so relatable. Is he really is just like a complete loser. Mm-hmm. Like he's a good person um, and he's a, he's a smart guy and he's he's talented but he's just like completely like he's a little bit his banner is supposed to he's not supposed to be like a cool Deadpool quippy guy he's supposed to be like kind of a dork and like he's not very good at jokes yeah um, and I think that's um, 
like no shade to uh, Spider-Man or not, sorry, uh, to Batman or Superman or Wonder Woman or any of the Marvel heroes that existed before Spider-Man, like the Fantastic Four or Captain America. But it really is that uh, Peter is one of the first, like, like he's a teen superhero who's on his own. He's not like Robin or a sidekick. Um, he's got all these real life problems in a way that, you know, Bruce Wayne or uh, what's it called? Diana Prince do not. Um, like his pathos in that amazing fantasy 15 and those first Stan Lee, Steve Ditko comics. Like he is a nerd with glasses. He wears sweater vests. He gets dunked on by everyone around him. Um, it really like there. Like, I think Spider-Man is really popular in part, and he blew up because he was one of those first very, like, everyday superhero types. Um, Even the Fantastic Four, they were all, like, scientists and stuff, or not all of them, but, you know, um, they weren't, like, down-on-their-luck kids who are poor uh, with this, you know, parents already dead and a sick, you know, uncle and aunt couple or anything like that. So I think, like, the core appeal of Spider-Man is very much in that original framing of him as just like a down on the luck teenager kind of guy um which you know the mcu tries to get at you know sometimes but it just never really pulls it off in the same way that say the first raimi films did or spider-man 2 when he's living in the world's shittiest apartment it's great (laughs) he can't pay his rent yeah so um at this point mj and ned lead these other spider-man over to our our universe is Spider-Man Tom Holland, um, where he kind of hides out on top of his, I think Midtown High School is mm-hmm. what they call it. I forget. Mm-hmm. It might not be in Midtown. But... No, it's Midtown. Midtown High. And then, you know, first Ned and MJ come and give him a big hug, but I think Peter Spider-Sense lets him know that there are other people there. Um, and this is where uh, Toby and Andrew kind of jump down from atop the building and present themselves. And, you know, Peter's like, I got to kill these guys or I got to send them back to their universe. He literally says it's your it's your problem. Yeah. Like, these guys are your responsibility. And he's like, you guys don't understand how I feel. The loss of Aunt May is something only I felt. I'm the only person who's ever experienced loss like this, um, which, you know, is kind of silly. Um, not silly, but it feels a little weird after he spent far from home grieving after Tony Stark the way he did. Mm. Um, it's, it just feels like... Uh, he should be a little better at coping at this point, given all the things that happened. I don't but, know. I think it may is like his. Yeah, it's his rock. His, I don't blame him, but it just seems almost feels like it's repeating a little bit of the same arc from far from home. I thought, um, but I, I don't complain because it actually sets up some really good stuff mm-hmm. um, be, because that's where uh, Toby McGuire gets to talk about his uncle Ben story. And uh, Andrew Garfield gets to talk about uh, the Gwen Stacy moment, um, assuming, you know, maybe someone out there hasn't seen Amazing Spider-Man 2 or not read Amazing Spider-Man 121 from 1970-whatever. Peter Parker uh, tried to save Gwen Stacy from falling, um, and he webbed her uh, to prevent her from hitting the ground, but in doing so snapped her neck and i kind of paused there because there was also a spider-man blue comic which makes it seem like that the green goblin killed gwen stacy before throwing her off the george washington bridge um so there's some messy canon there you can kind of pick and choose what you want um but ultimately gwen stacy is the person he's lost and the pathos they're playing on for this scene i really like i think it i honestly think garfield does great work with that i like him talking about um because it's one thing you don't really get to see him work through that at all really because it's like the end of amazing spider-man 2 and so there's a there's a really interesting stuff where he talks about how after a few years he just he stopped pulling his punches and i don't know the implication is that he started killing people i don't think they're going that route but it definitely seems like he's a much he's become a more rage-filled spider-man 
Um, Bloodlust Spider-Man, as we can call him, like an action figure version. Battle Damage Spider-Man, Bloodlust Spider-Man. But I think that, that, that's also it's also a um, foreshadows the end of the movie a little bit. But it's nice. It's really good stuff. It's it paints him as as I think people kind of assumed because let, let's be honest here. The moment that they started revealing what was going on with this movie, we all knew that those two guys were going to be in it. Like there'd mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. there'd be no point in them bringing back Will and Foe and bringing back Alfred Molina and Jamie Foxx and not bringing back those Spider-Man. Like people really thought that they weren't going to do that. I don't know why. Especially when they are showing you the villains coming back. Yeah. If they're showing you that, that means there's something there's they're not showing mm-hmm. you. And the only thing they couldn't be showing you that would matter would be those guys. But I think um, I think people kind of assumed that um it's different characterization than the Jake Johnson Spider-Man in Into the Spider-Verse, but I think mm-hmm. people kind of assumed that Toby would be like the over the hill kind of not over the hill, but sort of the the weary, beaten up, sort of tired Spider Man. But he seems to be in a good place. Yeah. After his post Spider Man three, so it's really more Andrew Garfield Spider Man who's kind of the, the beaten down world weary one, which is an interesting twist. Right. Um. I think the way I like to think of it, it's not quite Christmas past, future, and mm-hmm. present, but it's like, um. Let's say there's just a big darkness in the life of Spider-Man, and it seems like Tobey Maguire's kind of come out of that yeah. and settled into a happy place or a homeostasis with, with his responsibility and his power. Whereas it seems like Andrew Garfield's like in the middle of his darkness, and this is our Peter Tom Holland entering that darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like one's going in, one's in the middle, and one's come out of it, kind of. And I think that actually plays really well in the way that they... Because it also kind of, in a way, reflects their own franchises in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, it gives Andrew Garfield a chance to almost be cathartic about the fact that his Spider-Man franchise failed. Even though they're not talking about it directly, um, there is kind of a meta-conversation about, this is giving us a chance to, quote-unquote, rehab that Andrew Garfield Spider-Man mm-hmm. franchise, in a way. Um, I don't think it makes those movies better. It just... It allows it to play off the fact that it was kind of considered the lesser of these three. Well, um, we'll move on here to the big end fight here, but I, I do think there is a little bit. Uh, this is solved by the end of the movie, but I did notice at one specific specific point, I was like, "Wow, Tom's suit is just much shittier than the end." <laughs> like yeah, the Raimi um, Spider-Man I'm, suit, people love, and I love it. It's great. And then that the one thing I will say, the Amazing Spider-Man Two suit is the best one. That that's I a hundred percent agree. It's I think the best one um, that's shown up yet. It's great. Yes. Um, and uh, I agree. I think there's no doubt that the second, I think the Amazing Spider-Man suits were the best. And then Amazing Spider-Man 2 had the specifically best Spider-Man suit, um, which we'll come back to in a little bit. Cause I think that kind of, I think there's uh, a rears its head. Near yeah. The there's, there's a, there's a question now. I may, I may not believe that hundred percent anymore, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, before we move on to the big last set piece, um, we do have, uh, uh, all the Peters mentioning the great power comes great responsibility line. Um, and I do like, and this did come up in Spider-Verse, so it's not like wholly original. And this mm-hmm. goes all the way to all the Spider-Verse comics. Is that great power versus great responsibility? That's kind of what links the Spider-Man across the universes on top of like Uncle Ben and being Spider-Man. But it feels like that thing specifically binds them all. Because um, even in uh, Into the Spider-Verse, we hear all the other Spider-Men talking about people they lost. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and what they learn from that and all that. So um, it feels like if this is the core pathos and the thing that makes Spider-Man unique among superheroes, that it would be the thing that binds him across all iterations of Spider-Man. Of course. Yep. There's also, before we go, I guess I do want to talk a little bit about the scene of them 
I like that they are able to um, get more efficient cures when they go work as scientists together. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also the great, there's great scenes of them, the three of them trying to be like quippy, funny guys. And they're all just kind of dorks, which is great. Um, yeah. There's the, again, there's the MCU crosstalk stuff of him, of Ned asking for Peter Parker. And they're all like, yes, yes, yes. Like, yeah, whatever. But I do like the, the, they specifically imply that the goblin serum wouldn't have worked without Toby anyway, because he's, he's most familiar with it. He's, he even says, I've been thinking about it for a long time. And then, um, and then, yeah, like it would make sense that, that Andrew Garfield Spider-Man could create a cure for the lizard because he did it already. And, you know, all the stuff they do is it works better because it's people who have firsthand experience with these villains coming through. I do like them talking about, uh, when, when they're waiting for the villains to show up at this at the the statue of Cap, of Captain America, the cap the cap shoe of liberty. I don't know what we're gonna call it. Um, <laughs> um, I like that they uh they go out of their way to uh, have them all talk about their. Oh, they they also do the thing I was hoping they would do, which is freak out at uh, the weird Raimi organic webs. They hate it. They both yeah. we have these Spider Man like I, that's disgusting. It's gross. Um. Yeah, but, uh, all that dialogue is stu- stuff I want. Like, I'm glad that, yes. I mean, I don't know if there's any way you can call it other than fan service, which, you know, I've said before on this podcast, I view that term specifically as value neutral, and it could either be good or bad. Yes. But that's the kind of stuff you want to see in a Spider-Man movie, um, with multiple Spider-Men specifically. You want them talking about that stuff, or who's the craziest villain they fought. Like, I would excise basically all the Ned and some of the MJ stuff, mm-hmm. like, dialogue-wise from the, like, second half of the movie. But pretty much all the Peters talking, like, leave all that in. That's a little bit gold. There are times where, like, Tobey Maguire is clearly making an MCU-style joke. Um, yeah. As opposed to, you know, like, a Sam Raimi-written joke or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I can forgive it because it's still surrounded with the good stuff. Um, there is there is a great bit where the his where uh, Andrew Garfield helps him crack his back. I thought that was that was a sweet little, like, older Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, you think about it, that would fuck your back up. Swinging. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I like, I think all the Spider-Man dialogue between the Spider-Man, I think I would keep. Um, again, there are, you know, there's this, you know, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but there's a later line where it's like, I was in the Avengers yeah. and, Peter, and Toby's like, that's great. What is that? Which is a funny joke in the theater laugh, but that is definitely more of a MCU style joke than um, Peter would have said in those Raimi films. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. And then I, 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 I do, I do like that. They give, they mostly give Toby like kind of corny, like, but also helpful lines with that stuff. And they give Andrew the more like burn jokey lines. Cause that's kind of what his Spider-Man was. Is, is that a band? Yeah. Which is a good sarcastic y or yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's good. It's good um, that, that some somebody wrote it to give them they all have slightly different personalities. It's not just two more Tom Hollands, which is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Tom Holland actually plays well off them as well. Mm-hmm. Um because he has his own kind of Spider-Man voice, which is more of a happy go lucky and obviously less of the poor down on his luck guy until this movie. But I, I also I also do kind of like that they he is sort of the leader. Because mm-hmm. he does have more experience. He fucking fought Thanos. Like, Yeah, um, I think that's great. Uh, first of all, ultimately, if this is an MCU film, it's going to put the MCU up yeah. front. But it actually used the fact that this Spider-Man has been in the MCU, has fought with the Avengers, and uses He's, it. He has had more screen time than the other two. For narrative purposes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So that takes us to this big uh, final battle at the Statue of Liberty, which is currently being refashioned with a cap shield in place of the torch. Um, and uh, basically, they're able to lure all the villains there using uh, footage they sent to J. Jonah Jameson to post on the Daily Bugle website. And, you know, they have this all this fun crosstalk that we just kind of went over. You know, I love the not the Avenger stuff, but like that stuff comes out of you and like what's the craziest villains and blah, 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 blah. Um, but then eventually the villains start showing up. Um, and we kind of, uh, we, it's, uh, Dylan, uh, Electro, Sandman, and Lizard are the three that kind of take center stage first as kind of the three lesser villains of this, uh, group. Um, and, uh, at first the Spider-Men are pretty much getting waxed by them, um, because they're just kind of all over the place. They don't know how to coordinate their attacks and, you know, they're able to isolate, uh, the villains are able to isolate and take on each of the Spider-Men on their own. Um, and then, like, amidst a sandstorm when Sandman's kind of putting himself back together, um, the three Spider-Man have a little conversation. Uh, this is where that Avengers crack comes in. Um, they kind of make sure everyone's on the page on who's Peter 1, who's Peter 2, who's Peter 3. Um, and then they come up with a plan. And all three of them pitch into the plan, uh, which is nice. Is like dividing power. I, I, like, uh, I like Andrew Garfield, like, just like, uh, f- whatever, uh, Peter 3, who cares? Like, just having to accept that his movies were the least popular. <laughs> Peter 3. Um yeah, no, I, 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 I think a lot of my enjoyment of this movie, uh, not a lot, but a big part is just how much fun Andrew Garfield's yeah, having. And I kind of feel, feel good for the dude. Um, and he's also kind of having a moment. Um, I will never officially recommend Lynn Manuel Miranda products on this podcast. Um, but, but he was in Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a story about Jonathan Larson, uh, the guy who uh, created Rent and many other plays. Um, it's a fantastic, it's a really good movie, but it's a fantastic performance by Andrew Garfield. Well, it's 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 good to get him because I feel like that like the reception of those movies hurt his career a little bit, and it's like Andrew Garfield's great. He's social network. He's, so he's good. good. He's a terrific actor. Right? Yeah, um, and he's also uh, he's also more kind of with it in terms of like broader things. Like he's talked about Spider Man being this kind of big capitalist IP thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he was on interview uh, with another actor. I think it was like Jessica Chastain or Amy Adams or someone like that. And he was, they were, you know, like, what's the issue with movies today? And they were just kind of, you know, going to looking for like an easy answer. And he was basically going to say capitalism. Um, And then the host had to kind of steer him away from that just so like, you know, their capital capitalist overlords would allow them to play the video. Um, So he seems kind of like a guy who's aware of like bigger issues and stuff with that, which just makes him cooler, I think. It's good too. I mean, listen, I was happy to see Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. I love Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. I don't love Tobey Maguire. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stories of he's just an infamous kind of a dickhead on set. And Andrew Garfield, you, you never hear anything like that. He seems like a delightful guy. He seems like one of the most fun guys in Hollywood right now. So He's got great hair. Um, Happy to... Mm -hmm. Terrific head of hair on that Uh, guy. Oh, yeah. Such a good head of hair. Also great head of hair in Tick, Tick, Boom, if you ever check that out. Um, so we'll we'll talk about this fight a little bit. When they team up uh, and they agree to this plan is when we start getting all our hero shots and definitely a lot of uh, audience clapping at this point because um, we see all three of the Spider-Men running together, jumping together. There's a, I think there's a scene. Yeah, I think there's a scene where Toby slings the other two with his webs, which is cool. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, they have nothing to swing on, so he kind of like grabs the other two web strands and throws them. It, it's all really cool. I think it, this is basically why people wanted to come see this specific Spider-Man movie, and you know, at least it delivered on that front. Um, and we see them kind of all 
like the three of them take, they do a superhero landing shot or not quite a solid snake landing. They're a little more graceful than that, but um, they land on top of the Statue of Liberty and then they launch at the three villains, which was a shot in they the- They jump off the Veranzano Bridge. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, pretty close. No, um, but uh, they leap at the three villains and this is a scene that was heavily edited out of the trailer because oh, yeah. they only had one Spider-Man, but you could see like the lizard getting punched by nothing in it, um, which Just... would reveal itself to be um, the other Spider-Man. Um, this uh, this sequence really reminded me of one of the sequences from that PlayStation 4 Spider-Man game. Um, that game, um, minor spoilers, I guess, for a many-year-old, three-year-old game. Um, near the end, the Sinister Six or a version of them are set loose, and you have to fight multiple bosses at one time. Mm-hmm. And there is a set piece that's at night where you're fighting Electro, and he's actually with the Vulture. But it felt very much like this sequence where... You, you're basically airborne the entire time. You're not on the ground punching and kicking. You're just swinging around and fighting these guys. Um, had a very similar feel, maybe because it was nighttime in both of the scenes as well. Um, but I don't think we have to spend too much time on this. Um, we basically see them cure these three. Um, they end up stopping Max Dillon, uh, Electro, with the help of Doc Ock, um, who shows up at this moment. And he in- initially poses like very briefly that he's there to fight the Spider-Man. Um, but he uses that break to actually take out Electro, uh, remove the arc reactor um, that he had stolen from Stark's fabricator. Which made him more powerful, by the way. We need to, which makes sense. Um, and I do want to point out, um, even though it wasn't a costume per se, I do like that they kind of gave the Electro face mask yeah. um, to cool. uh, D- Dylan, which uh, it, it'd be a little too goofy to do the whole spandex look outfit uh, for Electro. Uh, but his look in. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is awful. Yeah. Uh, just like the all blue, I don't know, Dr. Manhattan-y weird look. It it doesn't vibe with any version of Electro I know, and I'm not like a huge Electro fan or anything, but try, trying to pull it off is cool. I, I do want to, real quick, we could talk about how he has a little moment with Andrew Garfield after he's depowered, where he's just like kind of reforms, I guess. Because mm-hmm. well, Electro doesn't really... That's the thing in that movie, he doesn't go on like a killing spree. I mean, he, I guess at times, at, at times, Curry kind of does, but he's, he's more just like, he just wants power and he wants to be mm-hmm. recognized. And there's a nice little sweet moment with him and Andrew Garfield. There's also that, uh, a good Jamie Foxx joke where he says, like, man, I, I'm just disappointed in you. And he's like, why? What, what did I do? And he's like, oh, I just, you know, you're from Queens. You help out poor people. I thought you was black. And he's like, sorry, I guess I'm not, which is a good joke, but obviously a Miles Morales joke. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is great, but no, it's great. Yeah, it's a it's a good little bit. Jamie Fox, I, I did I did laugh. At no point does Andrew Garfield be like, "Hey, well, look, I know things are bad with you, but you're and you're insanely handsome now." So yeah, it, trust me, you you can do anything you, you want. Like, you look like Jamie Fox. You can collaborate with uh, you know Kanye West at this point. You can star in a Michael Mann film. Um, the world's the limit, or you know, the sky's the limit for you at this point, Max Dillon. So there's a little short one with with uh, Flint and Toby Maguire, which I thought was good, also. Yeah, you know, they kind of give uh, the villains all their little moments uh, in this, which is great. Um, Doc Connors doesn't really get one, but uh, that's shit. fine. <laughs> yeah, um, but the, at this point, when they cure Connors, uh, is when Doctor Strange kind of shows up again. Oh, I. Oh, there is. We didn't even. There's um a very sweet scene with uh, Toby's Spider-Man and Doc Ock. Oh, yeah, we're not there yet, though. I don't think we're not. Okay, I couldn't remember. Uh, it, it, no, you're right. You're right. They do all that here. They get it out of the way. Um, because Doc Ock had not yet encountered uh Toby Maguire Spider-Man, 
and he pulls off his uh, mask. And, you know, it's a really cute scene because Alfred Millie is like, oh, look at you. You're all grown up. And, you know, how are things going? And Peter has the perfect Peter line here is just like trying to do better, um, which is like, again, they really get the Spider-Man pathos right with mm-hmm. a lot of these moments in this movie, which I think is why I'm generally very positive on it. Um, so um, that all kind of happens. But then it becomes time for... Uh, Norman Osborn to return, the Green Goblin, um, who's kind of mashed up between his hobo look and his armor outfit. He's unmasked, but has a hoodie on. Um, it's kind of a fun look. Um, I Like you said, I appreciate seeing Willem Dafoe's face. He's got a Green Goblin-y face in the first place. Yeah, very expressive face. Mm-hmm. And then we get more um, of, you know, Goblin and uh, Peter, Peter's fighting. And this is probably where, like, the biggest moment, at least in my theater, was, was... Uh, during the sequence, uh, the goblin or something knocks MJ off of uh, the Statue of Liberty and she starts falling. Uh, Tom Holland, Peter Parker, goes to make a swan dive to save her. But just before he's able to grab her hand, the Green Goblin swoops in and uh, carries Tom Holland off. Um, and you have like that, oh shit, now I'm going to die uh, face from MJ. And that's where Andrew Garfield uh, jumps. And he, instead of, uh, using the webs to catch her, like he failed to do with Gwen Stacy, he actually, you know, catches her and saves her. Um, and then when they land on the floor, you know, you can see that Peter Andrew Garfield is starting to tear up as he's asking MJ, are you okay? And then MJ's like, yeah, are you okay? Um, and you can see that, you know, he's really fighting to hold back the tears. And Mm. so I think again, a great moment for Andrew Garfield, go get that MCU bag. I'm happy for you, kid. Way to go. It's sort of his, that's kind of the end of his, his, he doesn't do much else in the movie. That's kind of the end of his arc. That's nice. It's still Mm -hmm. nice. It's a sweet little moment, I guess. If if what you're doing is pulling in the Spider-Man from other movies and you're able to find a way to kind of resolve some pathos from those movies, that's pretty much all you can ask for kind of at this point. Um, So, and then at this point, we're basically just left to Tom Holland and, uh, the Green Goblin kind of fighting it out. Um, this The big cap shield that was on top of the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty, by the way, was completely surrounded by scaffolding during this entire set piece. But all the like explosions and whatnot knocks the shield off of the torch, and it kind of takes out all of the scaffolding, um, basically just to reveal the Statue of Liberty as is, which they'll use for the victory shots and the you know skyline shots near the end of this film. Um, but... Um, Kind of, I don't, I don't know how fun it is, but I kind of like the fact that the final battle between Tom Holland and Norman Osborn occurs on Cap Shield. Um, this movie, you know, other than the Doctor Strange stuff, didn't dabble too much in the whole MCU ness of it all. Um, but it still kind of feels appropriate that they're fighting on Cap Shield in a way. And I don't know if there's much else to say here. There's again a lot more wrestling moves. There's some power bombs in here too, like a. One of the things where Peter flips over Norman and picks him up and power bombs him over him. Here's a here's a, 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 a revert. He has a, a released German suplex, cracks him on his okay, fucking there head. You go. It's great. Yeah, yeah. More of that, please. I will take way more wrestling now that Brian's got me back into AEW a little bit. Um, but eventually, Tom Holland just overpowers Norman and he's beating him down. He's not pulling his punches specifically. Exactly. He is where exactly where Andrew Garfield said he was when he was at his uh, nadir. And um, he picks up Norman's glider and is going to use the blade that, you know, Norman stabbed his stabbed himself in the dick with in his own universe. Um, but he's going to use it to uh, kill. Um, def- uh, sorry, def- uh, Norman Osborn. But uh, this is where Toby McGuire Peter steps in. 
um, and kind of holds him back, um, you know, or grabs this glider and prevents it from uh, stabbing Norman. Um, I like this, A, because I think Toby's the right guy to do it, but also it's not like they stand off for too long. Like, it takes uh, Tom Holland, Peter, just like a couple of seconds, and then he realizes, yeah, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, they don't protract it longer where it really strains credulity. Um, I, 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 li- I like that. Um, the length of this kind of face-off between the two. Um, but, you know, Goblin's not dead. Instead, he ends up stabbing uh, Toby Maguire, Spider-Man, uh, Peter 2. Uh, but in that brief moment, uh, Peter 3 launches the cure for the Goblin cure over to Tom Holland, who injects Norman, and that basically ends all of that. Uh, Toby Maguire survives. He says he's been stabbed before, but it did, it did look like he was going to die for a second. Um, I thought he was, um, but I guess they didn't want to top, you know, add that on to both the Aunt May death and what we're going to talk about in terms of the ending here in a second. Yeah. Um, so um, with all the villains kind of subdued, um, the last thing that's left is kind of fixing the multiverse and uh, what's it called? Sending them back. Strange had tried to kind of reverse the curse a little bit ago, but in all the madness, it again uh, blew out of his control and you could see the sky cracking um, very similar to how it did in the Sanctum Sanctorum. You can see, and you can see Rhino, Scorpion, Craven, a few other yeah. silhouettes of Spider-Man um, villains coming through. Yeah, Craven and Rhino were definitely the two that I specifically spotted. Um, and then the Scorpion was one that I saw in a still frame following the film. There's only so much you can watch, like yeah. watching yeah. it at theaters and try to catch. Um but uh, so this is where like uh, Strange is like, I can't hold it anymore. Everyone who knows Peter Parker is coming to this universe. And then, you know, this is where uh, Spider-Man's like, well, what if everyone forgets Peter Parker exists, which is a little different than the original thing of um, everyone forgets that I'm Spider-Man kind of thing. Um, and uh, Steven's like, yeah, yeah, that'll work. Um, but it'll, you know, completely ruin your life. You know, no one will know you exist, even me, even... Uh, he, I mean, Aunt May's dad, so he doesn't have specifically family anymore. Um, but he he agrees to it, and Steven starts casting that spell. Um, we, Peter gets a chance to say goodbye to both the other Spider-Mans. You know, he's like, you know, thank you so much. You know, I d- have a million things to say to you, yada, yada. And then we get a big hug between the three Spider-Man, which was another giant... Um, audience moment for us um again none of this is like hooting and hollering and standing ovation stuff it was just my theater was into it uh you know which is good to see yeah um and uh what's it called us yeah and uh after he says goodbye to the other spider-man uh he goes over to ned and mj and says hey um everyone's gonna forget you know i exist basically for lack of a better term um and then they both make him promise that you know once uh you know, Strange casts the spell to fix everything, that you come and you find us um, and, you know, fill us back in and let us know and all that good stuff. Um, so that all happens. We get a last kiss between MJ and Peter. Um, and, you know, then he goes off and fucks off and we see all the other villains and Spider-Man kind of disappearing and vanishing into their own universe. Um, and then we kind of cut to a little bit later, um, where Peter is going to the coffee shop that MJ works at. We saw this in the beginning of the film. And he's basically has a whole speech right now. He's like, hey, I'm Peter Parker. You don't know me, but I'm Spider-Man. And we did all these billion things together. Um, and he walks into the cafe. He thinks MJ's waving at him, but she's actually waving at Ned, who's behind him. Um, and they both, 
have gotten into MIT. I assume that's from Peter fixing it on the bridge and all that stuff. Well, I just from him not existing, then Pete, there's no right. There's no uh, there's there's reason nothing, they wouldn't. Yeah, there's there's nothing to stop them. So, mm-hmm. uh, so they're in. They're talking about how they're going to MIT. Uh, Peter says, you know, can I have a coffee? And he's very like labored or deliberate in terms of delivering his lines because he's kind of going back and forth. Do I tell her? How do I tell her? Um, all that stuff, trying to make small talk. And he, it feels like he's about to tell her, uh, but then Zendaya kind of uh, combs back her hair, revealing uh, some of the bruises or cuts that she suffered while, you know, helping Peter out on the previous battle. And that Band-Aid on her, like, forehead, like, really is like, oh, I put her in that danger, and she was in danger because she knows I'm Spider-Man. Um, they don't say any of this stuff, thank God. They just let it happen. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just, uh, you, you know, Peter's like, nope, just the coffee. And then he heads out. Um, and uh, we see that he kind of let his friends behind, which almost feels like a clean reset on Spider-Man for him in terms of his supporting cast at this point. Um, and uh, basically the last the last scenes, unless I'm forgetting anything, are him uh, going to his now poor-ass apartment. He does no longer have money. He doesn't have connections to Stark. Um, he doesn't even have an aunt or uncle anymore. Um, so he has this broke ass apartment. Um, and instead of, you know, another Stark Tech fancy nanotechnology suit, um, he sews and puts one together. And it is truly the blue and red of Spider Man, not like the muted colors that the MCU mm-hmm. tends to play in, but like pretty bright blue and red for its color palette um, that he puts together with the sewing kit. Um, we see his little. Uh, what's it called? Kid I saw logo. someone make the joke. Uh, he has the Emperor Palpatine Lego doll from Spider-Man mm-hmm. Homecoming when him and uh, Ned Beth uh, built the Death Star. And someone made the joke online is, I can't believe Emperor Palpatine has more presence in this film than he did in The Rise of Skywalker. Um, or at least you care about it a little more than you did in that movie, uh, which is fun. Ian McDermott was great in that movie. No shade on him. Um, but uh, ultimately, the movie ends with Peter Parker being poor again and him swinging out when his, um, you know, handmade homemade suit. Um, and it's just basically him. And who knows where we go, at least with Spider-Man from now, I believe he does have at least two MCU appearances left. They, that's not clear whether that means, uh, another Spider-Man movie or, um, you know, he is definitely going to be in Dr. Strange, the multiverse of madness, which we'll talk about here in a second. But, you know, it could be a clean reboot on Spider-Man. Um, although I did see uh, right before we started recording this episode that Kevin Feige supposedly said Spider-Man 4 is in the works. Yeah, I, I, Tom, Ho- Tom Holland's been a little reticent about it because he's trying to get paid more, which he should. Mm-hmm. This movie is the, it's the, I think it's already the first movie to have a hundred million openings since the pandemic started. And like, yeah, he's, he's going to be like, he, he should get paid more. Like, I don't know. Yeah, he should I mean, get that. He should get that Robert Downey Jr. deal. And you know, and it, like, I think you know, people you know have their varying mileage with MCU, especially when it's at this mature point that it's been around for thirteen years. But I think people realize, and I think Kevin Feige realizes that if Spider Man is the lead of your cinematic universe, you'll you'll be fine. Um, like, if he's like, I don't know if he'll join up with the Avengers, presumably so at some point again, but. Um, I think that will very much be um, like they're going to they want to build around him if they can. And Tom Holland was a no name when he was cast for Civil War. Um, He was mostly a stage uh, actor doing like Billy Elliot, Uh, whereas I wouldn't say Toby and Andrew Garfield were 
like the biggest that they were, but they were established film care, you know, actors at that point. Toby film had done, especially, yeah. Uh, October Sky and Cider House Rules. I think he actually got an Oscar nom for that. So, um, and then Garfield was in the social network, like you mentioned, and some other stuff. So, um, Tom Holland definitely came in at the short end, and I'm sure they gave him, you know, a smaller bag just because he was unproven at this point. But he looks to be a pillar of what they want to build going forward. So I imagine he'll he'll get that money, and we'll get at least a cu- at least one more Spider-Man film. Well, I think we'll see him in at least one more team up movie and he'll definitely be in the strange movie as well. Oh, cause he, um, they call it, they, they make sure to, to, um, go over that people still know that Spider-Man exists and Spider-Man, they still mm-hmm. be part of the Avengers. They just don't know who Peter Parker is. And I think that extends all the way to like, he doesn't have records. He may not have records anymore because he had, he has like a GED book with him when he moves into his apartment. Mm-hmm. So he's not yeah. going to MIT. No, he- He's probably just going to be, I mean, he's going to have to get the job as a photographer and maybe he'll work for J. Jonah Jameson again. I don't know. I think they're resetting it. It's, it's been needed for a while, honestly. I think they really kind of just, I'm ruined is too strong. I just don't like, I didn't like the, the Stark stuff, him being the heir to a billion dollar company. It's just, that's not Spider Man. He's not supposed to have money. Yeah. No, I, I think. Um, I, I, I'm kind of happy in myself. I predicted the way that the writing was on the wall with, uh, the end of far from home. Um, mm-hmm. when they revealed Spider-Man as a menace, um, and all that stuff, I'm like, okay, they're slowly getting there. And I can't imagine they're going to let his identity, um, be known by everyone. Yeah. Um, so I, I think they did a nice job of wrapping that up and making him poor again, uh, making everything that is Spider-Man truly just Peter stuff. It's not anyone else's. Um, I, I think they did a good job and he is still a menace in J. Jonah Jameson's eyes going forward. So here at the end of all things, we kind of got like the true Spider-Man just about to emerge. So I can't imagine this will be the end. Um, they should at least do one movie with that, like traditional Spider-Man status quo. Now that they've done several movies well outside of those bounds. Um, so we'll, uh, hop over to, uh, the mid credit scene here. Um, and this is where Tom Hardy Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock shows up um, and it's basically him having a conversation both with his symbiote evil half as well as a bartender um, kind of figuring out hey, what is this MCU universe. There was a guy named Thanos. He snapped everyone away for five years. There's a guy named blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, Tom Hardy t- or Eddie Brock talks about, hey, maybe I should go meet the Spider-Man fella, but he vanishes away to back to his universe, presumably. Um, but we see that he leaves behind a little bit of his symbiote which, you know, I assume that's going to set up something down the road as well. Hopefully. Hopefully that's what Spider-Man 4 is about. Yeah. It's it's uh, even weirder to see him in this movie with this fucking weak performance. Like, people were, mm-hmm. they were never going to bring him over to this universe full-time because it's, it's truly just an insane performance. Yeah, it, 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 feels, it feels like they did something by leaving the symbiote here without leaving Tom Hardy here. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't know if that means they'll ever meet. I know both Hardy and Holland have said they want to work together, but um, they might have to do at least one movie, maybe just a complete black suit Spider-Man without Venom, um, or at least the black suit as part of it, just to find a way to maybe massage the two tones of those two fi- uh, different franchises mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. before they combine them or something. Um, but it's interesting. And at this point, they're throwing everything else Spider-Man at this movie. Um, so why the hell not? Um, and then we'll get to the post credit scene, which is not a uh, scene per se, but it's actually a trailer. 
Um, it is this, uh, it is a shortened trailer for Doctor Strange 2, Multiverse of Madness. Um, it kind of shows that Doctor Strange has been a little reckless, uh, which is not only set up in this movie, but also goes back to um, even giving up the time stone for Thanos was a little bit of a risk. And the What If uh, animated mm. series showed that Strange um, might not be the greatest person to be Sorcerer Supreme, even though he's technically not. But um, So this seems to be the movie where all those chickens come home to roost. Um, I, I'm pretty excited for this, mostly because uh, it is Sam Raimi doing this. Sam the Raimi. guy who did those uh, first three Spider-Man movies. And just based on the trailer or the tease we got, a little bit of Sam Raimi seems to be peeking through. It isn't mm. as boring as some of the other MCU fare seems to be in their trailers. Um, we know Wanda's going to be in it. Uh, her whole WandaVision arc was kind of building into her role into this film. Um, America Chavez, who is a member of the Young Avengers, um, is seen in the trailer. She's the one in the denim jacket with the star on it. Uh, she's a multiverse hopper. Um, so we'll, it'll be interesting to see, uh, how she factors in, but she's a very natural fit for that. Mm. Um, Spider-Man is supposed to be in that as well. I'm very curious whether, um, Spider-Man will reveal his identity to Doctor Strange in that, or if he's going to, you know, try to keep it under wraps. Um, I think they're going to try and keep it under wraps, but I'm very curious to see how they play it. Well, cause he, he, he'll have more experience with this now that Doctor Strange will, cause Doctor Strange will have forgotten all this, but then the, the obviously the big reveal. Uh, well, um, Mordo's back in it, which is fun. He looks cool. Baron Mordo. Yeah, I love, uh, she, what's it? Oh, God. Uh, she tool Elijah for God. I feel so bad. Igia for So, um, I think he was great. Um, I didn't know if Mordo would definitely be back for the second movie or they'd hold him for like a third, but, um, given that he wanted to remove all magic users and wizards because he views them as dangerous and then Doctor Strange kind of broke the universe. A couple times, whether in this iteration or his like what if version, um, it makes sense that he would be immediately wrote back in. Well, that's the big, the big reveal though is that, that the what if Doctor Strange seems to be showing up in it also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is um, fun. I, I, I think that's great. Um, you know, the first Doctor Strange movie is fine, but I actually kind of really like Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange. Um, I think he does it really well. I liked him how he was in like Infinity War, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. in his brief moments in like Thor Ragnarok. Um, and I liked him in this movie. Um, and I think, uh, I, Doctor Strange 2 was kind of one of the movies I was kind of excited for in this later, um, these later phases, just cause I kind of like the character and it's a place where they can do something different in both in terms of storytelling and visually. And especially when they got Sam Raimi on board. Um, that's a big one for me cause that's a director with a real, he, he has his own vision and lens and autorial style. So, um, I, I think it looks good. I imagine we we're going to get a full trailer dropped. Um, within the coming weeks, like I'll, we'll probably let the first two weekends of this movie show, so people mm-hmm. can you know see it mm-hmm. on their own, and then we'll see a full two and a half minute trailer because this one was a little bit abbreviated. It almost feels like it was a teaser trailer for something bigger to come. I will say about the first Doctor Strange movie, if there's a problem I had with it, is that it took way too long to get into the Doctor Strange, like the multiverse stuff and the mirror universe stuff and all the weird shit that only happens in like the end of the third act. So I'm really looking forward to a Doctor Strange movie where you don't have to dumb it down for people who. You know, they do the Marvel thing of being like, they did it with Captain Marvel too, where it was like, well, people can't handle this. It, which is confusing because Guardians of the Galaxy worked because they didn't do that. But yeah, they just um, start, hit the ground running, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward very much to a Doctor Strange movie that doesn't have to hold people's hands for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I mean, once the Doctor Strange film kind of got rolling, um, it was great, but, um, and I get that they want to set up, you know, his injury and all that stuff, but it's uh-huh. a, 
it's almost like two separate movies, like before and after. Um, Cause once they can start going crazy, start doing all that, like inception style stuff and mirror universe. And um, then it really got like, it became a fun movie and the ending was pretty neat with Dormammu and all that. So um, Damn, I, I, I think strange, <laughs> strange two has a chance to be um, one of the better movies. Um, I've liked most of the Marvel fair post end game, but none of it's really, you know, knocked my socks off in a way that say, like Winter Soldier did, or maybe Thor Ragnarok, or Guardians. Um, well, see, like, the, I mean, and none of these are like great, like all time classic films. But you know, there was a freshness I, there, and that freshness is gone. People, so. I, I don't want to go too long on this because we're already almost at two hours. But I think people, people misunderstand criticism of the MCU to be like criticism of the films. Ninety, most of the films are, are pretty good. Like the content is not the issue. It's it's the con- it's the environment the content is being produced in with Disney just suffocating everything else around it and like um killing off their own their own like fox pro- like just just destroying you know buying up theaters and just obliterating the industry around it that that's the issue here it's not yeah, no, the content the content is still mostly enjoyable you can enjoy yeah. the content fine it's just that the company making it is um trying to obliterate the rest of its industry yeah, this the systemic. Uh, the, it's the system that's really the issue because Fox recently killed a Ben Affleck, uh, Anna de Armas like erotic thriller. Um, they really undersold the last duel, mm-hmm. um, the Ridley Scott uh, medieval epic, which by all accounts is supposed to be a great film, but because it just doesn't fit neatly into that Disney brand, um, and they did they just kind of killed it and didn't give it the kind of rollout it otherwise would have gotten as a prestige film. So, and I think the other big thing is um, besides those is when you go to theaters, how many screens are being allocated to Disney products, especially when there's this and say a Pixar movie or something also in theater still, Um, I bet you somewhere still has, you know, they're probably still showing Eternals as well at some theaters. Um, So if you have theaters allocated to Spider-Man and Eternal, how many other, you know, theaters are available for other films. I think Disney has really squashed out like mid range films um, where it's like, yeah. everything's either a big blockbuster or now it's a, it's an indie a 24 kind of film. Um, so I like if Disney was doing all the, or if all these MCU films were still coming at this pace, but there was still that other vibrant, not suppressed side of Hollywood. I think there'd be a lot less issue, but it, it's, you know, it's the fact that it's suffocating everything else. Like you said, and on that dire note, no, it was, it was a good movie. I liked it, but it's just it's depressing to think about that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, even though we kind of nitpicked along our way, I think we both generally enjoyed the movie. Um, it's a fun time. It's a movie I'll, I'm looking forward to seeing again. I, I don't think it'll be as fun the second time, but hmm. um, I do think you know it is a movie you'll be able to come back and pick apart um, in a fun way just as a fan, not as a, ooh, the 10 Easter eggs you missed in Spider-Man No Way Home kind of way. I think I think it'll hold up better than, like, Endgame, for sure. Yeah, this, there's some real, in that third act especially, some real good character stuff, and it felt like it honored, like, the McGuire and Garfield stuff in a way that didn't feel like we're just trying to do this to get people in seats, which they are, um, but it you know, it felt organic or at least authentic. Like there was some spirit there that, you know, there might not be otherwise.
that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsonsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash bomb. which, hey, Manuclear Bomb, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. I'm still Brian. I don't have any other podcasts. Sorry. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Shout out to our sound editor.